Yeah, it, it's an overwhelming task. And the research alone seemed to be above my abilities at the time. You know, I didn't think I, I didn't think I was capable of doing anything about this. Uh, and so it's, it's pretty remarkable, even though we're not done yet, uh, what we've accomplished so far. Welcome to the book I had to write. This is the podcast where I talk to authors about their most compelling stories and why these journeys matter to anyone who wants to publish. Hey, this is Paul Zakshevsky. Here's a quick story for you. Last year, I got an email from a potential coaching client named Leah Eichler. Now, back in the mid-1990s, Leah was a young Canadian journalist working for places like Reuters and the Jerusalem Report. And Leah decided to use her newfound skills for a personal project. For six hours, she interviewed her grandmother all about her life before and after World War II. They talked about what it was like to be a Hungarian refugee, an Orthodox Jewish woman, but most especially about being an Auschwitz survivor. Leah called the tapes from this interview the Bubby Tapes. Bubby is the Yiddish word for grandmother. As you'll hear in our interview, Leah carted around these tapes for years. She calls them her most valuable possession. You can hear her banging on them during the interview. And she wanted to use them as the basis for a memoir about her grandmother's life. Except she had a problem even listening to them. So as we started working together, Leah's relationship to those tapes began to evolve. And at the same time, Leah's relationship to her own story changed as well. So one of the main questions hanging over this interview, if there is one, might go something like this. How does your book change as you begin to dive into writing it? Now, I've never before interviewed a client of mine, and I wasn't really sure how things would pan out. But to my surprise, the conversation became this really great opportunity to reflect on the surprising ways that the coaching relationship can help to shift the writing process. Call it a state of the union between coach and client. I think if you've been overwhelmed by a book you want to write and you aren't sure where to start, you're going to get a lot out of Leah's experiences. Welcome, Leah. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. So I, I wanted to start things off by taking us back to the beginning uh, when we started working together. Back then, I asked you, why is this project important to you? Mm-hmm. And you wrote me back. You said, I've been putting this off for 25 years, and I'm not sure I can do it any longer. Wow. I remember feeling that. <laughs> yeah, you do? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's interesting. So, um, you know, what inspired me to reach out to you, I mean, I've been a journalist my entire life, my entire adult life. And... Um, and then I turn into a fiction writer. Um, stories are really important to me. But at the back of my head was something that not at me. And, you know, I had an internal monologue with myself that never quite stopped. And it revolved around what you know, you now know I, I call the Bubby tapes. So uh, when I was very uh, early in my journalism career, I sat down and interviewed my grandmother, uh, who was one of my primary caregivers growing up. And uh, over the course of six hours, um, I asked her questions about her life before the Holocaust and 
her experience during a little bit about that as much as I could. And I kept these six tapes with me forever. I mean, they were literally the most important items in my life. Um, I kept them in my safe. Sometimes when there was nothing else in my safe, I kept them on my desk. I kept them beside my bedside table. I moved with them. Um, I touched them to make sure they were still there. Um, and there was something about them. I couldn't listen to them, but I felt like they were calling me to do something with them. And that urge became just too much. And that's when I reached out to you. Do you remember what your first idea for the book actually was? Like what your first concept was when you approached me? I hate to say I don't. I want to guess that it was just a straight telling of my grandmother's story, but that that was probably it. I was thinking about taking the very, what I now know is a very traditional route, uh, which is explore her story as I would a researcher and follow her path and have it all be about her experiences, a very traditional, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, Holocaust memoir as told by a second or third generation writer. Can you tell me more about your grandmother? She seems to have had this really big presence in your life. Well, you know, she was really, and it still, it, it hurts until this day. She was really like nobody else. So, and we have this very intimate, almost you know, mystical relationship. I mean, our language, our common language was a mixture of English, Yiddish, Hungarian words and hand gestures, but she understood me uh, on a level that I don't think anyone else in my family did. And, and if you were to look at her, uh, you wouldn't expect what lay underneath. I mean, she came across as a very orthodox, you know, elderly Jewish woman. I mean, she looked, you know, she always wore very long clothing. You know, her hair was always covered. Her skin always glistened because of, you know, excessive moisturizing. But underneath, there was something else. It was like a, a code. It was a missed opportunity. And I got these glimpses of the life that could have been had the universe not intervened. So, you know, for the longest time, I could only listen to the first few moments of the tapes. And even the first few moments reminded me of how different she was. I mean, so there's a woman who, yes, was considered educated for where she came from. Maybe she just had um, a great maybe six or eight education. But um, she... Um, you know, she opened up her tape by saying something so poetic, like you are like the dew on the grass, the first thing in the morning, uh, a, a miraculous act of God. I mean, it's it, it just how she spoke. I mean, who speaks like that? Uh, no, no one I know, uh, no one anymore, at, at least. So when we started working together and you were thinking about doing a memoir about your grandmother, it was clear to me that you were really feeling a bit overwhelmed. Do you remember that? I think I still feel pretty overwhelmed by it. The whole process is very daunting, um, especially something that is, it seems so raw, even years later. It is, yeah, it, it's an overwhelming task. And the research alone seemed to be above my abilities at the time. You know, I didn't think I, I didn't think I was capable of doing anything about this. Uh, and so it's, it's pretty remarkable, even though we're not done yet, uh, what we've accomplished so far. When we started talking, 
I asked you to think about some comparable titles uh, or comps. Mm -hmm. And one of the first books you mentioned to me was Daniel Mendelssohn's magnificent book, The Lost. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your relationship to that book and what it kind of opened up for you? Right. So up until that point, I can't say, as much as I wanted to write this book, I, I can't say I read a lot of Holocaust memoirs. I think it was something I researched and read a lot about when I was much younger. As we've discussed, you know, not every family is really that interested in revisiting the past. Um, so it was really highly discouraged in me to to scratch the surface any more than I already had. And then I was introduced to The Lost. And I think I picked it up because I had mentioned to someone that I would like to write this book. And they're like, oh, you should read The Lost, which, you know, I hadn't even heard of, even though it's a, you know, huge bestseller. That just shows you how little I was paying attention to this area. And I mean, it's not a short book, and I think I inhaled it in like three days, um, which was really unusual for me uh, for a a nonfiction book. But it resonated with me so much because uh, the underlying core is, I mean, A, it's beautifully written, and it's it's told like a mystery. I mean, a mystery, and you know the ending. Like, you know they die in the end. Everyone's die. It dies in the end. There's no real, um, you know, a surprise. But the mystery of the search uh, really, really resonated with me because I think despite all we know, and, and I keep learning more and more, it, it just feels like it's never enough. I mean, I always have more questions. I always want to dig deeper. In fact, you just undertook your own Holocaust search, uh, your own root search. Uh, you went to Hungary just a week or two ago. Can you tell me a bit about the highlights of that trip? Um, what did you discover? So this was, it was a very emotional trip. You know, it's obviously we landed in Budapest and, you know, did the tours. And then when we adapted, you know, we hired a guide, genealogist and a translator to take us to the villages. Uh, now, these villages, they, they penetrated my imagination for years. You know, I I joke that they could have been Anatevka for all I know. I mean, they were they maybe were real in some way real. I'm not 100 percent sure. So when we started driving there, it was it was fairly emotional. There was there's just so much to say about it. You know, we first went to uh, my grandfather's village, and it's called Napkor, and these are all in the eastern part of Hungary, in what's called the the Satmar Sabol province. It's, uh, both villages, and especially my grandmother's villages, will I get to, are really on the Ukrainian border. That part of Ukraine was actually Hungary way back when. But we first went to Napkor, and uh, what struck me is not surprisingly, but ethnic cleansing worked really well. Um, I mean, it's cleansed of any, it's a, these are Hungarian villages. Uh, they seem very Hungarian. You see the odd Roma, which, you know, they refer to as gypsy and, that, and the guide insists that it's not a, a, an ethnic slur there. I doubt that's accurate, but you know, they, um, ethnic cleansing has worked really well. So um, we went to Nopcor to start with, and we went to the administrative building and asked for information about my, it's not just my grandfather. I mean, we're talking generations of people lived here. I mean, for like maybe a couple hundred generations. And the funny story from Nopcor is they offered to take us to the Jewish cemetery where, according to the administrative papers, my family, parts of my family were buried. So I was very excited to go until the, the guides at uh, 
the administrative building asked us to follow in our car. <laughs> and I mean, we went kilometers outside uh, or miles outside the center of this village, like in deep in the forest. You know, it was it was actually a little surreal. We heard a gunshot go off. They told us that just to scare off birds from the forest, uh, from the orchards nearby. It was a little bit terrifying only because you know my joking part of my head which is not actually really joking is thinking well, last time you know some of these people escorted us down into the middle of a forest didn't work out so well for us so um, but here we are uh, and we entered an area that was the Jewish cemetery and it's completely empty of tombstones so it's essentially just a burial ground of unknown people it looks like no one has been there for decades likely now that you've had a little bit of time maybe to let things settle a bit, yeah. how do you feel like this trip might help to inform your book? You know, the visit was very emotional. And I think I'm not 100% sure how that's going to fit into the, the story as a whole. But I would like to somehow reconcile the mythology in my head. And I think the mythology a lot of us have of these Holocaust stories, it seems like they're almost too sacred to even examine too carefully. And what this means today, this is the last generation of Holocaust survivors. I mean, perceptions change in every decade and every generation. And then I, I think it's an important conversation to have to see how this is going to be remembered 25, 50, 100 years from now. This feels like a good moment to shift gears. And I wanted to ask you a bit about the impact of our work together. I'm wondering how you see the idea of your book as having changed. How is your book concept different today than it was, say, eight or nine months ago when we started working together? Right. I mean, it's dramatically changed. And I I really credit you with actually giving me the confidence. I mean, I've I've been a writer for a very long time, but I didn't feel at all confident to tackle the story. I think the story was too sacred for me. It seemed too daunting. Uh, I think I would read The Lost and think, I can't do that. So maybe I should just <laughs> just call it a day and give up. First and foremost, you've actually given me the confidence to actually do this. Uh, I don't think I would have gone to Hungary. I don't think I would have gotten this far. I don't think I would have done the research. I don't think I would have done any of this. I think I would have sat and looked at these tapes for the rest of my life and beat myself up in my head for not doing anything. Uh, so I think that has had a huge impact on my, um, on my heart, <laughs> my soul. And uh, on the other hand, you've also allowed me to think out loud and try different ideas. I, I think it's more fascinating to position it, you know, there is a bit of not just memoir, but, you know, understanding how to position it with, you know, additional analysis and bring in perhaps part of my own story, which I would not have been comfortable doing and bring in some social commentary. I don't think I would have ever thought to do that. And I don't think I would have ever had the confidence to do that uh, without your help. You know, one of the big shifts that's happened that I feel like I can see is even in your relationships to the tapes, you know, the tapes that you actually just picked up as we were talking, uh, because they're right next to you. 
You told us already what's in those tapes, but what's changed in terms of how you work with them? So I, have, I haven't listened to all of them yet, and I really need to be in a strong emotional space to listen to them. You know, and, and I think part of it is I realize now it's that self-flagellation. You know, I feel like I should have done more, recorded more, interviewed better. I, you know, I was a newbie journalist and I was trying to protect her as well as uncover information. So I was being gentle and I was asking the same question again and again and again because I wanted answers, but I wanted her, I wanted to ease her into it. And I mean, I also... I sound like a child on the tapes. Like I sound like my daughter. I mean, it's actually uncanny how young I am there and how young my grandmother is. You know, it's also um, working with you and having this kind of looming deadline of the research. I've had to listen to the tapes because I feel now that there's, I've disassociated myself a little bit or enough at least to, I need to glean information so I know what I'm looking for. So being able to listen to the tapes more has given you access to actually being able to verify what's on them. Right. Yeah. I'm trying to approach it as more research versus the last, you know, words my grandmother, like my grandmother's voice or the last words I will ever hear her say. And I'm trying to approach it as a journalist or as a memoirist or biographer versus uh, a granddaughter who's still kind of hurt. So one of the goals that you had in our work together was to create new material, new standalone material, new essays that you could publish, Yeah, um, both as uh, pieces in magazines, as well as future chapters for the book. And now you've done a couple of them. Yeah. And I just wanted to walk us through a couple of those. Uh, the first one is a piece called Tattoo Jew, which was kind of about your changing relationship to tattoos, both yours and your grandmother's and others in your family. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that piece and how it's changed as we work together. Yeah, uh, the Tattoo Jew piece comes from, you know, my relationship. I, you know, when I was younger, I was rebellious. I was angry for, you know, my teenage years and I was a bit rebellious when I came back. Rebellious, it, it means something completely different now. I mean, in an Orthodox Jewish environment that's very conservative, I was rebellious in that I decided not to maintain that orthodoxy and I got a tattoo, which was... It seems like nothing now, but at the time, it was really scandalous for Jews to have tattoos. I mean, it was tattoos referenced the Holocaust, you know, tattoos referenced damaging skin to the point where you can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery. That was, These were all the fears. And, you know, I had this really weird relationship with it because I got it in a way to commemorate my grandmother, although I never told her. And, uh, and she obviously never wanted to talk about her tattoo and in fact really never wanted to show it to me so she had a tattoo she didn't want to show to me i had a tattoo i didn't want to show to her and this was her auschwitz tattoo is that right sorry i should have clarified it was her auschwitz tattoo uh which i grew up um and you know that tattoo as i i write in the piece and as we've discussed it 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 struck a lot of fear in me as i was younger so where the thing, where it changed, you know, is I don't think I was even so much aware about how, I you know, I was aware about how I was trying to channel her through my tattoo. I, 
I don't think I was as conscious, even as I was writing it, until you pointed out how my son tried to channel me to channel her through the tattoo. I mean, and that was the, and that was a bit of epiphany. I think you said it once when we're going through the edits process that his tattoo is actually a reference to mine and it never even occurred to me. And I thought it was a bit of a shock that that pain um, as you talk, the pain and the ink get transferred from generation to generation. So even as my grandmother tried to protect me, I, of course, would like to protect my children. But there's just some things, you know, I can't protect them from the pain that I felt just like she couldn't protect me from the pain that she felt. And uh, and I don't think I made that connection to my son's generation without your help. You just wrote a fabulous piece about being in a biracial relationship and the ways in which each of your kind of inherited or historical traumas seem to be uh, tripping each of you up, correct? Correct, yeah. And uh, tell me the news that's just happened with that piece. Yeah, so um, I'm working now with Toronto Life to have it, to have a version of it published, fingers crossed, uh, in September. That's the really exciting news. You know, again, this also relates to how the book has evolved because this is in no way about my grandmother, but in, in many ways, it's it's all about my grandmother because how did I grow up with this paralyzing fear of another Holocaust and how is that translated into my relationships with with people who are also descendant of uh, historical tragedies and traumas. I mean, my my partner is, is a black man uh, whose family comes from Jamaica and is descendant from the African slave trade and ha- and is a black man in black skin in our in our environment in our world and. It's been very eye-opening for me. I mean, I, I've received, an, you know, a real education in the, in the many years we've been together. And I try to get that into the piece, which I call, um, well, for now, uh, Let Us Compare Tragedies. Because I think there is something in human nature about wanting, you know, and, and there's, very, there's something about hurts. I mean, everyone wants their hurts to be on top. And your hurt can't, can't always be on top. And... And I think that's hard for me, but I think it's also hard for a lot of members of the Jewish community. I mean, you know, you can't put down the Holocaust card and then walk away from the table and say, my work here is done. Because well, it, it's not. And that's what I'm hoping to get across in that piece and hopefully in the book. Congratulations. Really nice. I love that. I want to ask you a bit about the work that you started doing back in your 20s, which you've alluded to in this interview. Yeah. I believe you got your start with Reuters and the Jerusalem Report. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. And you interviewed lots of famous people. Uh, who were some of them? Yeah, so I you know, I started out in Jerusalem. I worked for the Jerusalem Report. And then I moved on and worked for Reuters. And I was a Global Mail columnist, freelance columnist for seven years. And I mean, I, I did some independent you know, research and interviews. Some were for th- those publications, some were for others. I actually interviewed Simon Wiesenthal for my, for my own purposes. I traveled to his offices in Vienna while he was still alive and essentially forced myself into a meeting. And you had to, back then you had to fax him. I mean, it sounds insane. Sorry, Simon Wiesenthal is the Nazi hunter, right? 
Yeah, yeah. He's the famous Nazi hunter. It's, I mean, obviously, I've interviewed and researched and written about a lot of people. I, I always talk about Wiesenthal and Morgenthaler for very specific reasons. So Wiesenthal is a famed Nazi hunter, and that kind of strikes an image in our imagination about, I mean, now there have been so many Hollywood films about these kind of hunting down Nazis and the retribution and, you know, the kind of vicarious joy in, you know, in doing that. I mean, it's very binary as well, but I needed to see him again. This comes down to, is he real? Is he not? Is this a figment of my imagination? And I needed to see his office. I needed to know that there was someone out there because back then I think I was still very afraid. I mentioned Morgenthaler, which, you know, your, your audience may not be familiar with, but he was the very uh, famous abortion doctor in Canada who went to jail. He was a Holocaust survivor and he fought terribly, like desperately for abortion rights in Canada went to jail because he saw that these back alley abortions were essentially another Holocaust. I mean, this was his calling. And he, you know, he was someone that I considered a hero and I was fascinated with him. And I was fascinated again with he took his Holocaust experience I and mean, he was a Holocaust survivor. I believe he went to the camps. I can't, I believe so. And um, decided that his, uh, he's going to focus all his attention on saving women. So those are some of my favorites. How do you feel like your background as a journalist has helped you as you go about writing this book? I don't know how much it's helped me. I'll be honest. I kind of wonder if it's hindered me in some way. I, I think my expectations of myself are so much higher. And when it comes to tackling this topic that's so near and dear to my heart, I'm struggling. And I think I'm angry with myself because if it were someone else's story, I mean, I think it would be easy. I'm trying to divorce myself from being the journalist so much. I, it's interesting to listen to your last podcast and, you know, some of your uh, subjects really rely on their expertise when they approach. But I, I'm trying to maybe clean the slate and see if I can look at this in a completely different way. Maybe not as a journalist, maybe not as a daughter and granddaughter, but you know, someone who feels a lot of emotion about what happened is, is still saddened by it, but also wants to put it into some sort of current perspective. I'm sure there's a journalism reflex in there that I that I'm exercising, but I don't know if it's helped me as much as I think anyone who was in my position who is not a journalist could also do this. I think that's what I'm trying to say. It may take them longer, uh, although it's really taking me a long time. And But I think anyone else could do it too. In addition to being a journalist and a fiction writer, you also, I believe, in the middle of 2021, launched an online magazine, Esoterica. Correct. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit more about that effort. Uh, I think the pandemic, like, you know, any war or any major historical event, it, it hit me just, just like the, the tapes hit me, like it's now or never. Um, you know, there are these kind of world altering events where you think to yourself, I, I have to do this because, you know, if not now, when? And the magazine, you know, really comes out of, I, I've run large, like I've run major newsrooms for, you know, major media companies. I, of course, that wouldn't entail fiction, but I, I missed being around writers. Writers are some of my favorite people. Some of them are terrible and some of them are, are wonderful, but I enjoyed the thought-provoking process of reading people's work and mulling over how to script it into something that's beautiful and tangible. And... um 
and it's a labor of love. I mean, I, I bankrolled it myself. Um, I'm, you know, myself and I have a friend who helps, uh, who helps me with it, Susan. But it's really, I missed being around writers. And I thought, I don't want to be without that community. And if I can't get gain entry, I'm just going to create my own community of writers myself. So if folks want to find Esoterica online, uh, where should they go? Oh, sure. So esotericamag.com is our, our homepage. Uh, most of our efforts are directed to Substack. I mean, I'm really loving Substack as a distribution model. And I think in some ways, it's just recreating the wheel. Uh, I mean, it's so similar to the early internet days of like blogs and stuff. But I find the discourse is so intellectually stimulating on uh, Substack. So we are, if you look for Esoterica Mag on Substack, you will definitely find us. And then if folks want to find you online and read more of your work, uh, what's that website? Yeah, yeah, LeahEichler.com. I have my fiction, my nonfiction there. Um, I have a teasers to um, to some uh, to a novel. Um, so yes, I would love to hear from anybody. Um, I love to talk writing. It's again my favorite topic of conversation. People contact me all the time about uh, their writing, and I, even if I can't help them with publication or in my magazine, I, I love to talk to them about it. Well, Leah. I just want to thank you so much for this conversation. It's really been a pleasure getting to talk with you. Well, Paul, it's been such a pleasure to work with you. Uh, And again, I I have to reiterate that I don't think I could have gone this far without your help. It's it's really been, um, it's really altered a lot of my psyche about this book. So I'm, I'm eternally grateful. You've been listening to my interview with writer and founder of Esoterica, Leah Eichler. I'm Paul Zakshevsky. If you enjoyed the show, then I hope you'll subscribe to it. I'm always grateful for reviews and for sharing the show with friends. To read a full transcript of this in every episode, sign up at thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash subscribe. And if you're working on your own book you have to write, or you want to get started, maybe I can help. I love supporting experienced authors with expert advice and focus coaching. I help writers craft book drafts, agent pitches, book proposals, and more. Find out more about me and my coaching at thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash coaching. That's thebookihadtowrite.com forward slash coaching. And thanks again for listening.